I have to watch my left side tonight. It's good to see everybody out. Some are feeling better. I think others are feeling worse. We need to pray for the ones who are sick. And I've been taking my airborne vitamins. <laughs> Sylvia introduced me to those the last time I was here, and I'm glad I have them now. We're going to continue our studies concerning the judgment seat of Christ, and tonight we're going to be looking, Lord willing, to begin with in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. For our initial reading of the scriptures, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. The scripture says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly love, and to brotherly love charity. For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to have that abundant entrance into that glorious kingdom. Let's pray. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for the word of God before us this evening, for the privilege we have to meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus. As you have asked us to do, whatever we do, do all in his name. We thank you for his promised presence in our midst, and we pray that you would help us to discern it and to enjoy it tonight. We pray that the Holy Spirit would minister the word of God to us in a way beyond human possibility and speak to each of our hearts and touch our lives that we might know tonight that we had met with God. And that God has spoken to us from his word. And these things we pray, asking them so that all the glory and the honor might belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. We're thinking these evenings about what a serious thing it is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And how God has appointed a time a day and a time and a place where each of us will be, or we will all be, but each of us will appear individually, personally, before the Lord. We must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ so that every one may receive the things done in the body. And last night we considered and how important it is to remember that the judge at the judgment seat of Christ is none other than our Lord himself, the one who knows all, the one who can take everything and has taken everything into consideration, who knows things about us that perhaps we choose to forget, 
but who happily also knows things about us that we have forgotten that were good. Little things we did that we forgot that he will show us were for him. He knows about those who serve in the background, whose service is silent and um, private, let's say, not public. He knows what our capacities are. And he knows whether or not we're living up to them. He knows all of the choices that we make. And he knows all of the circumstances surrounding those choices. So when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to be explaining to the Lord why we did things. Do I make myself clear? We're not going to be arguing our case or informing him like sometimes with parents with children and you walk into the middle of an argument and you decide this one's right and this one's wrong and the other one immediately begins to plead his case. Oh, but you don't know. Before you came in, he said this or she did that. And they begin to inform you about all the things you didn't know about or as often happens in churches. Some people who have the gift of gossip and the gift of criticism, they float around in circles and they have the gift of informing people about the negative qualities of other people. But they don't take everything into consideration. And they often are missing a lot of details and can be very prejudiced in their judgments. The Lord is not that way. He sees everything in the perfect light of the righteousness of God and the omniscience of God, knowing everything about every one of us. But we're not getting to that until Sunday, the severity of the judgment seat of Christ. Tonight we're going to be thinking about the standard at the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to think with me about some passages in the Word of God that show us very clearly how God has laid out for us the things that he will use, the principles that he will use to judge us. And you remember when we say judge us, we're not talking about condemnation. We're not talking about a judgment of sin. The Christian doesn't look forward to that. The Christian knows that according to Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not talking about condemnation for sin. Nevertheless, even though that is true that our sins will not be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ, that does not mean that our lives will not be reviewed. All of our service, all of, the, of our potential service, including lost opportunities, will be brought out at the judgment seat of Christ. As he will look at our life not from the standpoint of sin to be judged, but from the standpoint of service to be rewarded. Things that were done for him and things that were a waste of time. Now, I, don't, I went out to look as Adel was making the announcements, and I don't see any books. Does that mean we bought all the books at the book table? They're all gone. There was a wonderful book out there. If you got it, I'm glad. Worlds Apart. It talks about the fact that there are only two kingdoms that you can belong to. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And it is one of the devil's greatest works he can't take away your salvation. He cannot take away the salvation of a person who has trusted in Jesus Christ. He deceives some people into thinking they're saved when they're not. And that's the worst kind of confidence to have. A false sense of confidence when I think, I listen to the gospel and I think, oh, I should have brought so-and-so so he could listen to that when I'm really the one who needs it. 
So he deceives some people into thinking they're okay when they're not. But then he goes to work on the Christians. We have an enemy. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to ruin our lives and ruin our testimony. And the obvious way he could do that, we think, well, people like these televangelists who uh, fall into sin and it's spread all over the airwaves and everybody knows about it. And we say, oh, what a disgrace. And it is a disgrace. But did you know that the devil isn't really waging his warfare on that level every day? I mean, that's not the only area of conflict. He is the sworn enemy of every single believer in Jesus Christ here tonight and anywhere else in the world. He is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your personal enemy. And he uses the world and he uses your flesh in order to nullify any testimony that you might have, any act of service that you might have. And he does it with the most harmless things. Because he knows that he can't often get a Christian to, to stand in open sin, to traffic in open sin, in flagrant violation of God's word. And so what does he do? He looks for subtle ways, things that are legitimate. Is it legitimate for a person uh, to love his family, to spend time with his family? To raise his family, to care for his family. Is that legitimate? Of course it is. And don't try to read anything into what I'm saying. I have a wife and seven children. I know it's legitimate for the Lord, for a person who loves the Lord to spend time with their family. But let me tell you this. Some people can get lost to the Lord in their marriage. They can get lost to the Lord, as far as the Lord is concerned, his service is concerned, in their family. They can become lost to the Lord, as far as the Lord is concerned, in their business. And they need to have a job. The Lord says that we should work to supply our needs. The Lord says that we should take care of our family. We should raise our children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. The Lord says for husbands to love their wives and for wives to respect and honor their husbands. All of these things are in the Word. But the Lord never said for us to to obsess on those things to the point where we have no time to serve Him in any other way. Well, I didn't go to uh, the meetings last week, last Sunday, because I felt I had a busy week and I needed to spend some time with my family. The devil knows, and I want you to remember this, these things that we're going to draw out now as standards that will be used at the judgment seat of Christ, the devil already knows them. And it is his job, his strategy as our sworn enemy to keep us from living according to these standards that God has given us. He can't keep us from getting into heaven. But there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. But he can keep us from getting a reward. He can keep our lives from mattering in any way at all for the Lord down here. He can keep us on the bench and keep us out of the game. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1, 
Joshua chapter 1. Verse 8, very simple instruction given to Joshua at the beginning of his ministry, his responsibility as a leader in Israel. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success." Here is God's definition of success. I don't care what Fortune Magazine's definition of success is. And the people who make the Fortune 500 and all of that. This is God's definition of success. And God's definition of success is a person who listens to, who who reads and meditates on, and lives by the word of God. And you might do that and be an absolute failure as far as the world is concerned. But you're not in God's kingdom. Because when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord is not going to say, Oh, well, here's a a dear believer so-and-so, let's say Smithikins. Because I don't think there's anybody here named Smithikins tonight. And if there is, please excuse me. Here's here's dear believer Smithikins. And and Mr. Smithikins, let's uh, have a review of your life. And your Christian service, and it looks something like this uh, gospel tract that we have in Spain that has a picture of fire on the front of it. And the words down at the bottom of it say, uh, what to do in order to go to hell. And you open the tract up on the inside and the page is blank. There's nothing in there. Nothing on the inside page to the left. Nothing on the inside page to the right. And so you close the track and on the back it says, that's right, nothing. Just keep going the way you're going. You'll get there. Just blank. So they began to look at, uh, to review Mr. Smithigan's Christian life and service. They're not opening the book of works to discover his sins because the Christian sins are not going to be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. They were all carried by Christ at the cross When God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But as we have seen from the scripture, God is concerned about our service as Christians. And so, Mr. Smithigans, here is the replay of your life. A blank page. Oh, but, uh, you know, I was in the Fortune 500 and I was... Uh, citizen of the year in this, and I was wonder why those things don't show up. Because self-aggrandizement is not part of God's agenda for our lives. The applause of the world, you may be very sure about it, the applause of the world means absolutely nothing in heaven. Absolutely nothing in heaven. All of the achievements of people down here in this life that they boast about. And it happens, you know, and they paper their walls with their degrees and their trophies. And they put them out where people can see them because they want people to see them. Well, you can't take those to heaven. And heaven is not the degrees and the papers and the trophies. And they're not the, he's not going to ask Brother Smithikins, which seminary did you study at? What professional preparation do you have? When they ask me that, I say, well, I studied 
at Mary's University. Mary's University at Jesus' feet. In the book of Acts, it says they took knowledge of them. When they heard the way they spoke, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That's the preparation we need. This is the preparation we need. God's word. He says it has been given to us that the man of God might be perfect. He says in 2 Timothy 3.17, thoroughly or completely equipped for every good deed. Now, if that's the complete equipment, that means we don't need any other accessories. Like sociology and psychology and philosophy and all of these things that people have now brought into evangelical churches in a horrendous lack of discernment in our times. Trying to accessorize Christianity. This is the book that completely prepares us for service and this is the book that will be God's standard at the judgment seat of Christ. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. We're supposed to talk about it. Thou shalt meditate thereon day and night. We're supposed to think about it. Some people only think about it when they come to meeting. And then not much. And why do we talk about it? And why do we think about it? He says that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. They talk about it. They think about it. They meditate on it. And they do what it says. Oh, but now, wait a minute, Carl. Wait a minute, Carl. There you go again, quoting the Old Testament and the Pentateuch, the the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, and there you go again, putting us under legal bondage. Oh, yeah, I have my ear to the wall. I know what people say. I've heard all of these things before. Okay, let's leave the book of Joshua. Let's go over to the book of James. The other end of the book, the New Testament, the Age of Grace, those books written by the apostles and here the Lord's brother. Oops, did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry. Was there someone here that thought Mary was a perpetual virgin? We're told in the book of Matthew chapter 13 about the other sons and daughters of Mary. Of Mary and Joseph. Well anyway here. We, we can't get off onto that tonight. If you need to know more about that. Come and see me after the meeting. James chapter 1. Now remember this is New Testament. This is grace. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring servants of the Lord. In New Testament times to write to us. This is not under the Mosaic law. And what does he say here in James 1.22. But be ye Doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. Never think it is enough to go to a meeting of a church and listen to a message. Never think it is enough to tune in a radio station in the car, the satellite radio on the internet, pick up a CD. Never think it is enough to hear a message. Because if that's all you do, then you're a hearer of the word. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. 
But whoso looketh into the perfect peep of liberty and continueth therein. I can't say that because some of you get upset if I use the word law in the New Testament. Well, there it is. If you have a problem with it, you have a problem with God. Whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, not being a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It can't get any simpler than this. You want to be blessed? Do what God says. Read my lips. Do what God says. It's that simple. And so when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, you may be sure, and I can assure you on the authority of God's word, that this is the book. This is the blueprint. This is the schematic diagram. These are the specifications that will be used to assess our lives of service. And so I don't care what the world thinks, what the churches think, what the sniper squad among the brethren think. I don't care what any of these people think. If it's what God said in His Word, you may be sure that when you get to heaven, no matter what people have said and done to you here in this life, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let it be our objective, our aim, to live in such a way that people can say what they want to here in this life, but we know when we reach heaven's door, when we stand before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ at that judgment seat, we'll be able to stand there and say, thank you, Lord, for showing me how to live. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. The judgment seat has to come. It is a reality. It is a necessary reality because something has to be, there has to be some point at which Christ assesses the lives of those who belong to him in accordance with his word. He's given us something to live by. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 3 says that our lives are, will be tried by fire and the things that are wood and hay and stubble will burn up. The gold, the silver, and the precious stone will survive the fire. If any man's work is lost, it never says his soul will be lost. It says if his work is lost, if it's burned up, then he will suffer loss though he himself shall be saved. But it is necessary that Christ assess our lives, and that ought to make us take seriously the Christian life. And knowing that the things are going to happen this way, our adversary tries to keep us in any way he can, distracted and diverted from living the Christian life. He wants our Christian life diluted. He wants us busy, so busy, so occupied with legitimate things even that we have no time for Christ. Rush, rush, rush. How many people, let's just take the, since we're dwelling a bit on the Word of God, the importance of the Scriptures, let's just take this simple survey. Nobody raise your hand or look at anyone else, but just think about the answer in your own mind. How many of us here tonight have read the Bible through from cover to cover? How many of us read it every day, more than two or three minutes? There are a lot of people who think that New Testament, a New Testament Christian and New Testament Christianity means you only read the New Testament. 
and you read the book of John because you like it where it says, for God so loved the world. And you read the book of Revelation because, whoo, how exciting. The spectacular things that are going to happen there. And you try to, it's a mental exercise like reading a, a mystery novel. You try to fit the pieces of the puzzle together and you entertain yourself that way. And you think that's what New Testament Christianity is? The Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. Two-thirds of the Bible. Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. It's there, but concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. The Old Testament is opened up and revealed in the New Testament. The New is in the Old concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. But if you never read the Old Testament, how can you come to these texts in the New Testament and read a chapter or even a book of the New Testament and think that you have an understanding of it? It's like coming into the end of a movie and trying to figure out what happened in this last chapter of the movie or the last chapter of a book having not read or seen everything that happened before then? And we can sit and watch movies and sporting events for hours on end. But how many of us can sit and read God's Word for 30 minutes? And worse than that, how many of us do it? How can we possibly think we are preparing our lives for that meeting with Christ at his judgment seat if we don't even know what his book says? How can we assure ourselves that we're living in a way that is pleasing to Christ, that the decisions that we take in life are according to God's will if we're not even sure what God's will is? We can't reduce God's word and God's will to sound bites. The scriptures must be read. And dear brother, sister, let me say to you tonight, if you haven't read the scriptures through, you need to get busy. Whatever else it is you're doing, you take your Nintendo or Xbox or or whatever it is you do and go lock it in the closet and say never again until I read God's word. Did I say that? Well, the Word of God lives and abides forever, but these trivial entertainments, the Pac-Man, wacka, 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 and all of these things people spend their time with, what is it going to matter in eternity? I guarantee you when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you stop and think about it right now, there are going to be a lot of things you wished you had put aside in order to spend more time on the things of the Lord. So if we know that, if we're thinking sane, logical, reasoning people, and we know that, why don't we do something about it? And why don't we say, now, tonight? And then some of us say, oh, well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me because I've read the Bible. I've read it through. I read it through personally six times before I ever got saved. That shows you how hard-headed, how dense I am. And this year, I'm reading it through again. And I don't know how many times that makes because I don't count them. I don't even want to know because it's not something to have bragging rights about. I just continually feel that I need to go back and read it through and study it again. And I never get to the place where I say, oh, well, I think I already know this. Every time I read it, it's fresh to me. 
So nobody gets off the hook tonight. This is the standard at the judgment seat of Christ. And if you go to a book, a systematic theology book, uh, you might find in a systematic theology a list on one of the pages there of things like this that we're going to go through tonight. But let me suggest to you why God doesn't give us a systematic theology. And if you have one, I have one in my library. If you want to consult it, that's okay. But God doesn't give it to us in a Reader's Digest format. Somebody else has already read it and digested it. There is no, that I know of, Cliff's notes or Barnes' notes on the Bible. You can't reduce it down like that and say, oh, I didn't read the book, but I read Cliff's notes on it. I, I checked out uh, Chafer's Systematic Theology and read that, so now I know the Bible. No, you don't. Read the Bible to know the Bible. And why doesn't the Lord give it to us all in a list in one place? Because he weaves it in to the fiber of Scripture so that as we read and learn, all of these things come together. He doesn't want to put it in one place like a list to be memorized. Every word of the Lord is pure. And he wants us to take in the whole book. So he's not going to give us a list, reduce it down to a list to put on one page for us to read and then think we've got the Bible down pat. There is so much to know, so much to learn, so much truth to glean, so much encouragement, so much guidance, so many warnings, and so little time. So little time. First principle or standard to be used at the judgment seat of Christ. First Samuel 2.30. First Samuel 2.30. I know at least one person in our congregation tonight... who would say this is their favorite verse. And I think you all know the same person. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Honor. Did we live to honor the Lord? Did we honor him in our speech? Did we honor him in our thoughts? The things that we did, did we do them for his honor, that he might be honored? Or did we do them for ourselves? Did we have some other agenda? Were we willing to sacrifice, even to suffer loss for the honor of Christ? To be faithful to him, come what may, that he might be honored. Were we willing to speak up for his honor, in his honor? When people take his name in vain, are we willing to say to them, the scripture says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
or do we just let it pass? One time in my years in the Air Force, I never reached the rank of colonel. I was a lowly captain. But I called a colonel down one day for that. Now, you have to know how to do it. Sir, you say to him. And you smile. And you say, remember, the scripture says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It would be better to take the name of your mother in vain than to take God's name in vain. And you probably wouldn't like it, sir. I don't know your mother's name. Let's say your mother's name is Rebecca. You wouldn't like it if I put those words that you just used and put your mother's name in there instead of God's name. And God's name is very precious to me. And he just smiled and looked at me. And I thought, here it comes. And he said, I see your meaning. And it passed. Now, if you stick your finger up in his face and start yelling at him, you're not going to get away with it. Because standing up for the Lord and his honor doesn't mean that we have to be disrespectful to superiors. And it doesn't mean that we take it upon ourselves to run companies and corporations of which we are not the CEO. Our job is to do a good job as a worker in the, job, in the place that we have been put. But do we honor the Lord? And everybody else fills out the paperwork and writes down things in their report that are not true. What do we do? Do we honor the Lord? Like that one girl who she went to work as a secretary in an office. I think I told you this before. And the phone rang and the boss said, if that's so-and-so, I'm not here. And she's holding the phone and she's a Christian. And uh, it was so-and-so. And she said, I'm sorry, but uh, the boss said, if that's so-and-so, he's not here. Uh, give me that phone. He took the phone. He said, oh, we're just joking around here. Don't pay any attention to her. She's a new girl. And he began to talk to them. And when he got off the phone, she got it. Never answer the phone again in this office. That's fine with me, she said. Honor. Do we honor the Lord? Does the Lord's honor matter to us? The second principle is God's glory. God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 it doesn't get any more all-inclusive than this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Notice with me, please, how he begins here. He begins with the mundane, with the simple, everyday task of eating and drinking. He doesn't say whether you preach or go out as a missionary or, or baptize people, or sing in the choir, do all to the glory of God. Well, we should do those things to the glory of God. We should also eat to the glory of God and drink to the glory of God. And if we eat more than is for God's glory, well, people see the results, don't they? <laughs> Eating and drinking... Or whatever you do. He starts with the everyday task. God's glory is to be the consideration of the Christian 
in his everyday life. Did we do it for God's glory? Was it for his glory? If we really stop and think about this, I mean, we could make ourselves a checklist, couldn't we? A decision-making checklist. I'm thinking about a decision I have to make. Is there any honor for the Lord in it? Would it be for his glory? This thing that I'm thinking about doing or that I want to do, is it for God's glory? And we take these factors into consideration from God's word and we allow them to guide our lives and our decisions, our priorities, our associations, our activities. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you may be sure that whatever we did as Christians, one of the questions that will be asked about what we did was, was it for God's glory? Oh, so much of what people do in this world is for their own personal glory. The showboat, the show-off, the person who's trying to be the hero or the star. You see it in the military world. You see it in the sports world. You see it in the business world. You see it everywhere you go. So how would that be now if the Lord says, love your enemies and, and be kind to those and pray for those who despitefully use you? How would it be if we prayed that before a sporting event instead of praying that our favorite team might win? If humility is good, why don't we want any of it on the field or the court? Well, you see, whatever we do, we should do it for the glory of God, not for personal glory. Third, love for Christ. Did we live, were our deeds done out of love for Christ? Was our life lived that way every day? He said to Peter, In John chapter 21, and most of you, I hope, remember we talked about that in November when we were together. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he asked him the question three times. And the longer the Lord persisted in asking the question, the more nervous Peter became. And the Lord says, on the basis of whatever level of love or affection Peter was capable of expressing toward him, he said to him in response, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That's why we serve Christ. That's why we should serve him, because we love him. It should be out of love for him. And that's why when you come to the book of Revelation and he begins to speak to the churches, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, and he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, how you cannot bear them which are evil and have tried them that say they are apostles and are not and and have found them liars and have borne and been patient and for my name's sake labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Thou hast left thy first love. And so we come back to what we talked about in November. Because this is a factor that will be present and will be under intense consideration at the judgment seat of Christ. The honor of the Lord, those who honor me, he he says, I will honor. The glory of God, did we do everything for the glory of God? And out of love 
for the Lord as our heart motivation. Boy, I tell you, you look at the human heart in light of what Christ has done for us, and sometimes it looks like a cold stone or a freezer locker. What Christ has done for us, he did in love. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And if we say that we love the Lord Jesus, how do we prove it? We come right back to where we started at the beginning. He who hath my word and keepeth it, he it is who loves me. Three times the Lord says that. In one chapter of the book of John, three times he comes back to it again and again. If you have my word and you keep it, if you love me, keep my commandments, he says. This is what he wants us to do. And so how do we show the Lord we love him? By choosing to do the things that his word says instead of the things the world tempts us to do. Instead of the things the world attracts us to do. Instead of the things our flesh desires to do. But some people love themselves so much that they don't know how to say no to themselves. And they say no to the Lord. Well, the Lord to those people who are believers but who cannot say no to the things that they should and yes to the things that they should, the Lord cannot give those people a crown at the judgment seat. He cannot give them a reward. He cannot say well done to those who have not done well. What kind of a sham would the judgment seat of Christ be if the Lord did things that way? There must be a distinguishing between good, useful, glorifying to God and worthless, wasted lives. And that time of distinguishing will come at the judgment seat of Christ. Was it done out of love for Christ? Has anyone here tonight left their first love, lost their first love, feel that first love has uh, calmed down, has mellowed out? I heard a believer say to a, an older believer say to a younger believer one time in a church in Spain. And the younger believer was out giving out uh, tracts and witnessing to people on the street. And the older believer passed by, went into the hall where they were meeting. And when the younger believer came in, he, the older believer encouraged him. He said, that's good. You should do that now while you have this first love for Christ and the enthusiasm. Because then later on, as you grow and mature in Christ, that will... You'll find that that goes down and you'll kind of get into a rut or a routine and you won't feel it like you did before. I was furious when I heard that. If that's the normal Christian life, may I never live it. That, is, that may be the normal Christian life, but that's not the biblical Christian life. I mean, it may be the typical Christian life, but it is not the Christian life according to God's Word. The Lord Jesus was very sensitive about that. I have something against you in spite of everything you have done because you left your first love. He didn't say you lost it. He said you left it. You left it. Love for Christ. The Lord is very sensitive about that. How can we stay in that state of love and devotion to the Lord? It's right here in this book. Dear believer, it's right here in this book. 
to read and meditate on his word, to stay close to the person of Christ, to stay close to the cross, to stay always in the shadow of Calvary, always in the anticipation of his coming for us. These things stir our love for him. And the more we know him, the easier it is for us to love him. But if we know more about CNN and, and the sports world and the financial world and the stock market report, if we spend more time and we fill our heads with these things continually and have no time for the word of God, is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that the heart grows cold? That the life begins to mellow out, as that person said, that service becomes something that is a rare exception. Oh, but I'm older now. I'm not any spring chicken, you know. My dear grandmother, when she was 85, she was still going visiting the old folks' home. And when she couldn't get the men to come from the assembly there, she couldn't get the men to come and preach to them. So she'd get them all together, all the folks that she could in this retirement community. She'd get them all together in a room. And then she had a lady with her who would play the piano. And she'd say, okay, we're going to sing this song. And she invited me to go with her one time when I was there so that I could speak to the people. And she got up there and directed the meeting. And I said, grandmother, you're not supposed to be doing that. And she said, well, the men won't come. And I said, well, praise the Lord, then you're doing it. (laughs) What in the world is wrong with the men? Don't have time. They don't feel called. So an 85-year-old woman is up there doing it, walking in the building with a cane. Her bifocal glasses are nearly the size of Coke bottles. Her, Her hand can't be still. It's shaking all the time. And she went until she couldn't go anymore. Her first love for Christ never died out. I never knew her from the time I was a little teeny boy until she went to be home, went home to be with the Lord. I never knew a time in her life when she wasn't full of enthusiasm for Christ. She was so glad to be saved and she never forgot that the Lord forgave her sins and saved her soul. And when she woke up in the morning, she said, when I get up in the morning, Carl, she said, I go to praising him. I go to praising him right away. That's the way she talked. And that's the first thing we should do. When we open our eyes, we shouldn't say, Oh, Monday, oh, Tuesday, oh, I hate this alarm clock. We should open our eyes and say, Praise the Lord. He saved me. He's forgiven my sins. I have another day to live and serve him. Maybe this is the last day. I'm going to live it for him. So, the honor of God, the glory of God, love for Christ, and and then fourth, something that we've been talking about all along, obedience, simple obedience. God makes it so simple. You don't have to philosophize about it. Philosophy, eh, debating the point, comparative religion, seeing what other groups and other evangelical groups, because comparative religion is not just Buddhism with Christianity. It's, oh, well, you know, the church down the road here now, they don't emphasize so much like we do 
constantly obedience to God's word and, and these things. They just enjoy the Lord. What do you mean? They're all the jukebox hour. Now, these young people here, they don't know what a jukebox is, I don't think. And that's what we used to call it when I was growing up. Instead of dancing, juking. Well, we do enjoy the Lord. But one of the ways we show that we enjoy the Lord and we appreciate him is by obeying his word. And the scripture puts it very clearly. Our Lord's own words in Mark 13. And remember these verses because there is, I repeat, no substitute for obedience to Christ. There is no substitute for obedience to Christ. Mark 13, 34 and 35. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. At even or at midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. And if he says it unto all, that includes you and me. What I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. The Lord is coming. And how are we supposed to watch? Well, he tells you here. He left his house. He gave authority to his servants. And he gave to every man his work. So you're supposed to work for the Lord, you're supposed to do what God has given you to do in his word. You do it with an eye on the door because he's coming. Not this door and this clock. I'm watching it. Don't worry. <laughs> that door. John says he saw a door open in heaven and he heard a voice saying, come up hither. Keep your eye on that door. Because when it opens, we're out of here. Color me gone. (laughs) And no more opportunities. No more after that. Obedience to his word. Not what did other people think about it, but did we do what God said? Not did we do what the majority said. Oh, but people are are these whiners. They always say, oh, but in other churches they do this and in other, and I went, I visited this church and they did that. I, I don't care if we're the only church. I don't care if this is the only place on the face of the earth that does what this book says. It isn't, by the way. I'm not deluded. I know it isn't. But even if it were the only place, it wouldn't matter to me because I could care less what the majority does. We have to do what God says in His Word, even if we are the only ones. Never read the Word of God and the commands of the Word of God and do this. Up Periscope and look around to see if anyone else is doing it. And if they're not, down Periscope and say, oh, well, I guess we don't have to do that because I didn't see anybody else doing it. Never look around to see who else is obeying Scripture before you decide to obey it. Say, this is what God's Word says. I'm going to do it even if I'm the only one. Because God is going to ask us. Well, I don't know if we can say He's going to ask us, but He's going to review this at the judgment seat of Christ. Did we do what he said. Faithfulness. That's another criteria at the judgment seat of Christ. Faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4. First Corinthians 4. 
verses 1 to 5. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Then shall every man have praise of God. Now, that doesn't mean that like in the Rose, Rose Bowl or the Rose Festival Parade, they're gonna, God is going to go around giving out praise like they throw out little candies to everyone in the crowd. That's not what that verse means. Some people misinterpret this when they read it. Every man will have praise from God. It means everyone who has praise, who deserves praise, will receive it from the Lord. I don't praise myself and I don't look for other people to praise me. The only right appraisal of what I have done will be when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there, if there's anything to be praised about what we did, the Lord will give it to us. It's not to seek man's praise and man's approval, but God's approval. And to know that on that day, if we have been faithful to what His Word says, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And we are stewards. We've been put in trust, for example, with the gospel, haven't we? We've been put in trust with the gospel. And what do we do with it? The Lord said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, let me tell you, if you can't cross the street or go next door and speak to your neighbor about Christ or the person in the desk beside you, how are you going to go to the end of the world and preach the gospel? There's nothing magic I can tell you about having a passport. Passports do not help people become missionaries. You have to be faithful in proclaiming and testifying of the Lord Jesus right where we are. And the place to start is walk next door or go across the street or to the person who works beside you. That's where it begins. And those little steps lead eventually further and further afield and a a person can find himself a long way from where he began. I never thought I would end up in Spain. If you had told me the year that I came to know the Lord that one day I would be saying, well, this is my 20th year living in Spain and I feel more at home there than I do in the States, I would have laughed myself silly. But you don't know what God has in store for your life. But if you don't take the first step of obedience, you'll never find out. Because it's not like an envelope. May I have the envelope, please? And you open it up and pull it out and there's the will of God for your life. It doesn't come that way. He reveals it to you one step at a time as you walk in obedience to him. So do we obey him? Are we faithful? He's given us the gospel. What do we do with it? And are we effective? Yeah, we had to come to this one sooner or later. Are we obedient? Are we faithful? And finally, are we effective? Because the Lord is concerned about our efficiency as serving him, in serving him, our efficiency as his servants. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, Luke 19, verses 12 to 27, 
He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come or, ne- or negotiate. Do business, literally, till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called to him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little Have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a cloth. And uh, the King James says a napkin. And the original, the word used there is literally a a handkerchief, something or or a rag you use to wipe sweat off of you. I, I kept this laid up in a cloth for you. And here comes the, this one is the psychologist in the group. For I feared thee because thou art an austere man and takest up what thou layest not down and reapest what thou didst not sow. So it, you made me nervous because you're such a hard man to work for. So he's trying to take the moral high ground. But it doesn't work. It backfires on him. I'm sorry, we don't have any time to go into that. But I will tell you this. If this parable teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is concerned about what we do with what he has given us. And just like the master of that household, he knows what he has given to every one of us. And every person has a spiritual gift. And every one of us has a certain amount of resources, some more and some less. And what have we done with these things that God has given us? And we all have the gospel. We've all been given his word. We all have Christian fellowship. And what do we do with it? We all have basically the same opportunities to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like our old football coach used to say in high school before every game, he always said it. Boys, the biscuits are on the table. This is down the south, you know. The biscuits are on the table, and whoever wants them the most is going to get them and eat them. That was the way he told us to go out and play and grab them, play hard. Whoever wants it the most. Well, see, we all have the same opportunities, but some people with those opportunities do nothing. And other people grow. Oh, and by the way, just so that we remember it, the scripture commands us to grow. In Second Peter 3, we are told, but grow. It doesn't say it would be nice if you did. It's a friendly suggestion. He says, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how are we going to do that if we're not thinking about God's honor, God's glory, love for Christ, obedience to his word, if we don't even know what it says? If we're not considering our faithfulness and our effectiveness to him in day-to-day life, how then are we going to grow? You know, some things in the Christian life 
are, as Paul said twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, some things are lawful, but they're not edifying. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are edifying. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Some things are not edifying, and some things are enslaving. They create habits that are hard to get out of. All things are lawful, but all things are not edifying. And I will not be brought under the power of them. And we need to remember that. Now, he's not saying that it's lawful to go out and rob banks. It's obvious when he says all things are lawful that he's talking about all, all of life in the sense of things that are not prohibited by Scripture. The Bible doesn't say I can't sit in that chair. The Bible doesn't say I can't go out and, uh, and play a round of golf. The Bible doesn't say I can't smoke a cigarette. Ah, but the Bible does say whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And so I'm going to get out my cigarette. Oh, excuse me. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you in Jesus' name now for this wonderful stick of tobacco. (laughs) And as I inhale the smoke and enjoy the nicotine, help me to do it for your honor and glory. And out of love to the Lord Jesus. What am I saying? And you see, there are principles in the scripture. There's not any little verse that says, you can't do this. What verse in the Bible says I can't do this? And what verse in the Bible says I can't do that? And I say, what verse in the Bible says you can? Is it edifying? Is it enslaving? Is it for the glory of God? Is it for the honor of God? Do you do it out of love for Christ? Is it in obedience to God's word? Are you trying to be faithful to him? And if not, then you put the big X on it. And it's gone. Or else, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will put the big X on it. And then it will be too late to fix. 2 Corinthians 5.10, and with this verse we close. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now you know we had to talk about this. Good or bad. I'm sure the first time we read it, some of you thought, I wonder what he's going to say about that. Because it says good or bad. It does say that, doesn't it? So what about the bad things we've done? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 in our minds. We're going to stay here looking at this page, but let's think about it. What does he say? There is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. So then how can the Lord look at the bad things? Well, I want you to remember this. And this is where it's helpful sometimes to have, for example, Vine's expository dictionary where you can look up 
uh, a text like this or a word like this, the word bad, and see, and then you look it up and you find out, lo and behold, there are different words in the language of the New Testament that we translate bad. And sometimes you don't even have to do that. You just read the NIV or the New American Standard. I love the Bible by Mr. Darby, uh, the New King James. Uh, you compare different translations and you see there, sometimes uh, they'll get a word clearer than in other versions. So what about this word bad? It comes from a word that means useless. It doesn't mean evil. It means useless. It's bad because it's wasted. It has no value. Like that old song we used to sing, with eternity's values in view, Lord, with eternity's values in view, May I live every day, every step of the way, with eternity's values in view. Those are the good values, the things that will matter in eternity. The things we'll talk about in heaven is not going to be the Super Bowl and the stock market and the soap operas and so many other things, the games we played and who won. Eternity's values, every day, every step of the way, because everything else is useless. Everything else. Lacking merit, it means, or of no benefit. So it doesn't have to be evil in the sense of diabolical. And you see, this is the way the devil works. He doesn't come at you with the horns and the pointed tail and the red pajamas. He's not working that way. He wants to get you to waste time, to waste your life, to waste your resources so that they are of no good to God. He doesn't want you to make an impact for Christ in this life. And if he, if he succeeds, well, he won't ruin your stay in heaven. The Lord will receive you because we're saved by grace and not by works, by grace through faith. But it does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that a person's works can be lost and they will suffer loss though they themselves and they themselves will be saved. He himself shall be saved though by fire. A cinder soul. A person who enters heaven empty handing and smelling like fire. Well, not literally like fire, but you get the figure, don't you? He's been through the fire and everything's been burned off of him and there's nothing there but his soul. Now, those are not going to be, everyone in heaven is going to be full of joy to be saved and to be with the Lord. But some people's cup is going to have a bigger measure than other people's. God is not a communist. It's not going to be, no matter how you live down here in this life, everybody's going to have the same in heaven. Just get that idea out of your head. All believers will go to heaven, yes. But the rewards make a lot of difference. The way we use our life makes a lot of difference. We're going to receive according to the things done in our body, according to our works. The Lord is going to reward us according to whether what we have done was good. Was it for his honor? Was it for his glory? Was it out of love to Christ? Was it faithful and obedient to his word and effective? And if not, if it had no eternal value, 
if it wasn't seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then what was it? Useless. When will we learn to weigh everything in the scales of eternity? With eternity's values in view. May I live every day, every step of the way, with eternity's values in view. It's time for your nightly poem. Oh, year by year, may we well be deep exercised and soul to see just what is chaff and what is wheat as valued at the judgment seat. Look back. We only render praise for grace attending all our ways. Look out upon the field so white, the needy harvest just in sight. Look up. The objects of God's love are fed with manna from above. Look on, for glory is in view, and Jesus waits to welcome you. How bright the coming days would be if only souls from self were free and had the mind and heart absorbed with Christ above their glorious Lord. May the Lord help us to apply the standards that he's given us in his word that will be used at the judgment seat of Christ to our lives on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus and we ask now that the things that we have studied from thy word be applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, to our lives, help us to remember them. Deliver us from being hearers of the word only and not doers. And show each of us in a way that only you can do what it is that you are trying to say to us and what it is you want to do with us and our lives tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.